All right. Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're also streaming at KUCI.org. This is Robert Larson. It's uh, 4.07 on the clock here on this Friday afternoon, October 20th, 2006. Getting started a little bit late today. Uh, we had our usual opening music there from the Stooges, I Got a Right, and then we had a little bit there that you just heard there called uh, Postcards from America Suite from the Postcards from America soundtrack. So uh, bef- uh, let me see. Before we get going, I'll give you a couple quick reminders. Uh, you can email me at rglarson at org, and also hit me up on MySpace at uh, myspace.com backslash out the rabbit hole. Okay, let's get into the show here. Um, Extraordinary rendition uh, sounds like a term a music critic might use to describe a superb performance of a classic number. The term is actually a twisted euphemism for a CIA program that is nothing more or nothing other than kidnapping and torture. Put simply, people that the CIA suspects, often via dubious evidence, have involvement with certain terrorist organizations are kidnapped and taken to countries where the governments will look the other way or actively participate in the torture of the suspects. Many think the program has stopped since some intrepid journalists exposed it. This illegal activity, however, continues to this day. My special guest today is A.C. Thompson. He is co-author with Trevor Paglin of Torture Taxi on the trail of the CIA's rendition flights. A.C. is a winner of a 2005 George Polk Award and a staff writer at the San Francisco Weekly. He is also a two-time winner of the National Council on Crime and Delinquencies Pass Award for Crime Reporting and twice the recipient of the Western Publication Association's Maggie Award. So we'll have him right up talking about his uh, trip to Afghanistan and uh, interactions with plane spotters and all kinds of other um, fascinating things in uh, unraveling this uh, ugly story. Uh, before we get started, I'll remind you that the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. AC, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. Yeah, it's really good to have you. I, I've uh, been um, quite interested in this subject and something I want to Put out there for people. I think it, it deserves far more attention that it's uh, than it's been getting. And uh, so, er, early in the book, uh, towards the beginning of the book, you you, you mention uh, about the uh, talk about these classified the classified finding statement President Bush signed six days after September 11th. Could, could you talk a little bit about how that sort of laid the groundwork for much of what we see today with this, uh, the war on terror and use of black sites, the extraordinary rendition? Well, well, basically, we can back up a little bit even before that. Is You know, some people think that the rendition program, the, the extraordinary rendition program, that that's purely a product of, of 9-11, that um, before 9-11, the U.S. government was never going to other countries and grabbing folks and um, basically picking them up. That that in fact is not true. Before September 11th, there would there was a rendition program. It was jointly managed by the CIA and the FBI. And sort of the idea of it at that time was a little bit different than than what we've been talking about for the past few years. And at that time, we were talking about a program that was primarily geared towards 
picking up criminal suspects in other countries and bringing them to the United States to face criminal tri- trials. They were facing criminal charges here. So some of these folks um, were people who had committed crimes against other people, um, against United States citizens, but in other countries. Some of them uh, had possibly committed crimes in the United States, but were in countries uh, with which we don't have extradition treaties. So this was really kind of a uh, quasi-legal sort of program. It was geared towards uh, adjudication in the criminal courts. And the kind of these kind of folks would end up typically uh, in a federal prison called the Supermax Prison in, in uh, Florence, Colorado. One of them was a guy who allegedly, or was convicted of, blowing up a Colombian airliner uh, on which uh, American citizens were riding. So that was kind of what rendition was about then. After September 11th, a lot, of, a lot changed, and basically at that time, uh, fairly shortly thereafter, the program was basically moved completely to the control of the CIA coming out of the Counterterrorism Center, and it became more a program that was about, rather than dragging people back to the United States to face criminal charges, it was about dragging them to dungeons around the world where they might never face criminal charges, and no one might ever know that they had been uh, taken prisoner. So let me be clear about this. The Extraordinary Rendition Program, did it actually start during the Clinton administration? It, it did. And, uh, and Mike Sawyer is the guy at the CIA who was one of the early architects of it. And, and he'll tell you, you know, he, his spin on it is, is, look, we were doing things uh, right in the Clinton era, and, and, you know, this is a worthwhile program, and it just got kind of warped after September 11th. I'm not entirely sure that that's completely true. I mean, I think there were some problems with the program before that, but it was definitely uh, not the animal it is now. So it's it's not clear if under the Clinton administration they were actually ever taken to other countries for torture, or do we don't know? Or yeah, I mean, that's like that. That's um, one of the things that remains kind of a mystery. Is that you know we have. Uh, acknowledgement from George Tenet that we're talking about 70 renditions that occurred uh, prior to September 11th. So we know there was a, a lot of them. And we know, you know, there's definitely cases where these people came back here and were tried. Uh, what happened to some of them is still a mystery. And, and that, that's something that actually bears <laughs> some research that, that, you know, that was something that we couldn't figure out is where are these people. But I would really like to see somebody dig a little more into that topic. But but definitely after September 11th and it, with the Bush administration, it's like it did get put on steroids or crack or something like that, and it got it really kicked into high gear. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And this is when we're getting we're getting um, you know basically new new marching orders from uh, President Bush from the head of the counterterrorism center, Kofer Black. Uh, who's saying, you know, this is when we take the gloves off. And that's when you really start seeing the program ramping up. So, for example, one of the uh, people that we spoke to had been a a pilot for one of the companies that works with the CIA and moves prisoners around the world. And he had said, you know, that before September 11th, it was kind of, there wasn't that much work for these these companies that work in concert with the CIA, that they were they would do a mission here, they would drop off agents there, but after September 11th, all of a sudden it was just like a spigot of money 
uh, started pouring into these operations, and they were hiring all kinds of pilots, and they were constantly on missions. And the missions involved abducting people and dragging them around the world. Uh, right, and then uh, we, and we do know that they, for sure that they were uh, being subjected to torture in countries such as, uh, well, in, in the book you talk about Afghanistan, but there are other Eastern European countries and places like Syria, Morocco, I believe, as well. But but uh, now the thing that I see as different, in, and I, I want to get into some specifics in your book, but I want to just kind of make this clear first. It, it, the thing that I see different it, it, with the Bush administration and definitely after September 11th is that there was a certain sense that this wasn't even like we don't want to even say there's something wrong about this like it used to be. The CIA has done all kinds of horrible things. You go back decades, but it was always like with the understanding that this is wrong, this is illegal, we got to keep it under wraps. And it seemed like, oh, we don't even want to say that anymore, that it's wrong or illegal, and we're going to sort of openly admit we're doing some of this. Well, you know, I, I think it's a little bit different than that. I, you know, that really um, the, the Bush administration – at least officially, had denied and denied and denied and denied that any of this was going on until September 6th. And on September 6th, um, the president makes this announcement, and he says, yeah, actually we are keeping prisoners in secret detention. They're really bad guys. Uh, It's a small number of them. They're al-Qaeda or Taliban operatives. They're not cooperating with us, but if we put pressure on them and keep them in this secret detention, we might get some useful information out of them. And, in fact, we're going to send 14 of them over to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, so they can be adjudicated by uh, the new military commissions that we're setting up. And I think this sort of revelation at that time um, that, okay, that now we're going to admit it, you know, th- the info had surfaced years before in places like 60 Minutes, the Washington Post, the research of the Human Rights Watch, the ACLU, and Amnesty International. But there was never an official acknowledgement until uh, just recently. And I think that, that that's significant because I think what the president was doing was tactical. He was saying, look, okay. You know, the secret's out. What do, what do I have to do to, you know, there's no reason for me to, to pretend this isn't happening anymore. But first he plays it down and makes it seem as if it's a very small number of people when most experts think that at least 150 uh, men and women have been the victims of extraordinary rendition. So it's, it's not an extremely small number. Secondly, there's a, a great piece of strategy here where he says, look, Here's these 14 guys. You know, most people can agree that they're really bad guys. They're serious al-Qaeda heads. They're real terrorists. And, uh, you know, anyone who's sane would like to see them uh, adjudicated and locked up so they don't commit serious terrorist activities. And what he said is, okay, you guys want that to happen. The Congress wants that to happen. The public wants that to happen. And if you want that to happen now – you have to um, basically accept the fact that we've been holding them incommunicado for years, that we've been holding them in secret detention, that probably we have been torturing and abusing them and using coercive ac- uh, actions to get to get information out of them. And if you don't like it 
and you want to make a stand about human rights, well, then we can't process them. You know, you know, if you want to say, well, that what you've done to them for the last four or five years nullifies any any you know fair trial that they could get, then well, we'll just have to cut them loose. So he basically played that very very well. Right, which is a false dichotomy, though, that it's the it, there, it isn't an either-or choice that you have to do these uh, horrible things and take away their rights or let them go. You, you, you know, they can be run through a normal legal process and be prosecuted, and, and terrorists ha- have been dealt with that way. Right, but he had, you know, as far as, far as you know, basically prosecuting somebody in an American, in a, in an American court, um, you know, if you were to prosecute somebody in an American court, uh, a criminal court, who had been in detention secretly and been abused and and um, tortured and tormented for years, any judge would say that, you know, any evidence you got during that whole time period, you can't use. And in fact, I don't even know if we can have a fair trial if this guy's been basically in the vortex for the last four years. And so it was sort of that uh, sort of thing that they, I think that they were the game that they were playing, saying, "Oh, you know, we got this info. You want these guys to go down, uh, you know? If you are going to say we can't use this info that that we got from them, then well, you know, this whole game is off." Uh, oh yeah, well, of course, for the guys, it's already been done to. But right. going forward, you, you don't have a choice of like, oh, torture or let them go. It, it, you know, you, you can arrest these guys through legal means and and. Uh, interrogate them legally and, and get information and prosecute people. It's been done several times. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and you know, like, what? Like, if there's one thing that this country knows how to do, it's police work. I mean, watch TV. The TV TV stations are full of, of uh, crime dramas. I mean, like, this is not that hard to do. You know, it, it, it speaks to a real lack of imagination when you... <laughs> start acting as if the only thing you can do to get information out of a person, the only way to build a criminal case against them is is to torment them. I mean, that that's patently absurd. Right, right. and it's actually counterproductive in, in many cases. And we, we've talked about this on this program, and we interviewed Dr. Stephen Miles, who had wrote the book Oath Betrayed, about all of that. But let's, let's get more into some of the specifics of your book, because it's a fascinating story. We're speaking today with A.C. Thompson about his book, uh, Torture Taxi, and a uh, subtitle of that is On the Trail of the CIA's Rendition Flights. But yeah, it's, it's a great read, and it's uh, you and uh, your co-author, uh, Trevor Paglin, traveled around. You did a lot of detective work, and one of the real interesting things you did was work with uh, people who call them Call themselves plane spotters, which I didn't know really anything about this before I read your book. And could you talk a little bit about who uh, these kind of quirky little bunch of people called plane spotters and how they helped you to kind of uh, get information for your book? Well, you know, it's really it's really interesting. The, the plane spotters are sort of one of the untold uh, untold stories of the war on terrorism. I think they're kind of unsung heroes in this whole thing. The plane spotters are basically geeky uh, hobbyists who are really, really into aviation. Um, and, and they're the kind of people, typically they're guys, uh, typically they spend a lot of time hanging out at airports and airfields. And what they're interested in are all the esoteric and arcane details of 
planes, you know, where they're going to, how they fly, what kind of plane is flying into where at what time. And, um, you know, there's a whole subculture of people for whom this is a hobby. And the, the interesting thing that happened was when journalists and human rights workers started started realizing, oh, it's very, very hard to get information on um, what the CIA is doing with these people. We're hearing reports that folks are being grabbed. We're hearing reports that people are being flown around the world by the CIA. But how do we prove this? How do we verify it? How do we figure out some more facts? Um, what kind of leads do we have to chase? Well, it turned out that the, the leads and the information that they could use were basically the techniques that the plane spotters had developed because the plane spotters have this whole network of, of folks who are taking photos of different planes around the world and posting them on the web. They are monitoring the, the tail numbers, which are like the license plate numbers of planes, and um, checking to see, well, what, what plane number is flying into what place. And a lot of them are doing some detective work, and they're, they're going and they're getting uh, Federal Aviation Administration documents. They're getting um, military documents, and they're trying to figure out, well, who owns these planes? You know, who who's behind these planes? And when basically uh, journalists like Stephen Gray, who has a book out now um, called Ghost Plane, that's on the same subject, and um, others picked this up, they realized, oh, well, if we can figure out that a plane is a CIA plane, if we can punch through that piece uh, of the shroud and figure out what's up with that. Then we can figure out where the plane is going because all planes that are flying in America, unless they're military planes, have to file flight plans with the Federal Aviation Administration. And then we can start getting some clues about where the CIA is going and what it's up to. And that uh, technique has really proven uh, to be a, a way to to get through all this secrecy. So, yeah, the... the um there is the secrecy. Obviously, the the ostensible reason would be for national security, but then there's also the issue of that many of these activities are arguably at least illegal activities, and so the people involved, the CIA or whoever, want to cover their tracks. So they use these planes are usually kind of unmarked, no writing on them. Is that the case? Yeah, you know, typically they they. Um don't have any corporate logos. They don't have elaborate paint jobs. What they do have is are these tail numbers, the, the license plate numbers, basically. And they're civilian planes. Um, the, the CIA is a civilian agency. And it's interesting. When you want to operate in, in the civilian arena, there's a lot of things you have to do. So you have to have this tail number. You have to file flight plans. But also, you have to get a permit to fly from the FAA that says, well, who owns this plane? You have to file uh, registration documents with them. You have to uh, then, if you're going to do that, and say, okay, um, say you're the CIA. Say you, wanna, you have a plane and you want to use it to transport prisoners. You can't just 
if you want it to be secret, you can't just apply to the Federal Aviation Administration for a tail number and a license to fly for this plane because everyone who wants to figure it out will quickly realize that, well, it's a CIA plane. Look, it's on the FAA document. So you have to create a fake company that ostensibly owns the plane and is flying it, and they'll make the application uh, for permission to fly to the FAA. So that takes you to the next level, and you got to start you know, that's one of the things that we did early on was when we suspected that uh, a plane was a CIA plane, we went and pulled all their corporate paperwork and looked at all the corporate paperwork for the companies that supposedly owned these planes. And what we would find was Potemkin corporations, shell corporations that obviously were not real corporations, that they were CIA constructs. So, so people that maybe are familiar with the uh, the Valerie Plame story would know that there was a front company there named Brewster Jennings. Is that type of thing, right? It's it's that type of thing. You know, this is classic CIA tradecraft: is to create um, front corporations to to uh, you know conceal what you're doing. And uh, um, a great Wall Street Journal reporter, Jonathan Quitney, did a lot of work on this front. Um, what we did is is when we were looking at these. Um, corporate documents, we would, we would look um, for three years of corporate documents for a company that we believed was a CIA front. And we would check out the signatures of the president on each one of these filings that they would have to make uh, each year. And we would notice that the signatures were completely different from year to year. And we, we included some of them in our book. And, and so you start looking at that and you go, huh, you know, my signature looks pretty much the same one year after the <laughs> after another. If, uh, if somebody signs uh, important corporate papers with a completely different, you know, completely different hand every year, I, I think I'm going to make a guess that this person doesn't really exist, that it was uh, different people signing it. And we would look, um, we would use a, a high-end uh, database called Accurant to look for these corporate officers, the presidents, the other execs at these supposed companies. And none of them would come up. We couldn't find phone numbers. We couldn't find addresses. We couldn't find any kind of listings for these people. Uh, we couldn't find property records showing that these people owned houses. And you figure, oh, you know, the executive of an aviation company probably owns a house somewhere. Well, no, we couldn't find that at all. We couldn't find proof that they owned any kind of property. And so after a lot of these kind of saw, uh, uh, searching, we, we became pretty convinced that the companies we were looking at, uh, companies with names like Keeler and Tate Management, um, Bayard Foreign Marketing, Premier Executive Transport Services, were uh, phony companies, that they were CIA uh, front companies. You know, and interestingly, some of them, some of the documents that are filed by these companies with the CIA or uh, with the with the FAA, um, the Federal Aviation Administration, use the exact same fonts, use the exact same language, and clearly were, were generated by uh, somebody at the CIA on the same day <laughs> using the same computer. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Peculiar. Let's talk a little bit about the. Um before we continue, this is Out the Rabbit Hole. I'm Robert Larson, and we're uh, speaking with A.C. Thompson, discussing his book, Torture Taxi, on the trail of the CIA's rendition flights. L let's talk a little bit about what you discovered by, you know, 
dealing with the plane spotters and, and figuring out the, the kind of weird flight paths and how these planes would go to one place and they seem to, to go on not direct flights to where their ultimate destination was and, and, and where what some of those ultimate destinations were. You know, th- that was that was something that um, John Sifton at Human Rights Watch clued us into, and, and he has adopted the plane spotting techniques, and he is one of the most knowledgeable people out there about rendition. And, you know, he said to us, look at this. This is um, when you're looking – at at a plane flights, the basically like the the straight lines are not that interesting. He said, you know, th- that means that basically, um, you know, that's a typical flight where somebody's just going from one country to another. Um, he said, the interesting thing are when you're looking at at flight patterns that are basically acute angles, that where the um, direction changes. And say say a plane flies to one point and then flies straight up or straight down from there, that that their um, direction changes dramatically. And, and he said, because look, that means that we're not this person, this plane isn't flying from the United States to a foreign country, refueling, changing crew, and then flying on to its next destination, which isn't basically the same line. He said, you know, when you look at these flights, you know that the. Uh, planes are flying to a destination, and maybe they're dropping somebody off, maybe they're picking them up, and then they're flying on to the next destination. And that was one sort of thought that he had, um, that he shared with us about tracing these flights. And when you start looking at the flights, and um, what we did is we got FAA data um, fed to us via a commercial service that will do that, that gives you FAA flight data. And we um, got it basically via the internet. We would look at these flight patterns, and we would see flights to Guantanamo Bay, flights to Rabat, Morocco, flights to um, Kabul, Afghanistan, flights to Poland and Romania, and these were all flights being made by these uh, planes that we suspected, and then later concluded were used by the CIA. It, it, right, so the ultimate uh, destination for some of these flights, Poland, Romania, and then uh, Afghanistan was one of them. Your whole trip to Afghanistan was was uh, very uh, fascinating, and and just uh, can you describe that a little bit about what it was like going into Afghanistan? I I mean, it's I think for most of us live here in Orange County, California, that's uh, probably doesn't get much more alien than that uh, to what we're used to. And is, could you describe a little bit what it was like going into Afghanistan? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, we wanted to go to Afghanistan because that was one of the main and is one of the main destinations for people who've been grabbed by the CIA. And most people who've been following this think that there's at least three black sites, three secret prisons around uh, Kabul, Afghanistan. And so it was sort of it was sort of the hot spot for us to go to, and it also was not as crazy as Iraq. Um, so we, we went there in May, and basically the, the deal that we realized when we got uh, on the ground in Kabul is that the, the place is still in a certain amount of chaos. The 
you know, in Kabul, the power goes off several times a day. And, uh, and most recently, I've heard that it's only on for three hours a day at this point. Um, the Bagram Air Base, which is outside of Kabul, was getting hit with RPGs on a regular basis by insurgents. When, um, when we left Kabul, which is considered one of the, the safer places in the country, uh, our translators asked us to wear Afghan garb, not Western garb, and not to say anything uh, if anyone approached the car um, so that they wouldn't, hopefully they wouldn't realize uh, that we were Westerners. And, uh, you know, when we made a trip, I, I made a trip um, to a town called Gardiz, which is uh, south of Kabul. On the way there, a bomb detonated uh, in another city called Logar as we passed through it, shortly after we passed through it. And um, bombs went off on Ka- in Kabul that day. Uh, more recently, the, the provincial governor uh, of the area that Gardiz is in was uh, suicide bombed and killed, and uh, his funeral was blown up the next day. So that's kind of that's kind of where things are at uh, in Afghanistan now. Well, I, I mean, how unsettling was that for you? I mean, did you feel in endangered a lot of the time when you were there? No, you know, I mean, Kabul is is dangerous, but then at the same time, it's it, in some ways it feels less chaotic than some some big american cities okay. it's really when you leave there i think that that things feel more tense and more risky um so so the trip to Gardiz definitely felt felt a little risky and um my friend christian perenni has a great piece in the nation this week called uh, taliban rising where he's expressing some of the same sentiments um what was concerning to us in a lot of ways is the interviews we were doing with people there um, who had been in U.S. detention at places like Bagram Air Base, and this is military detention, um, really were telling us stories that that were pretty horrifying. I mean, the, the stories people told us about being in U.S. custody were were wrenching. I mean, these these are people that had real Abu Ghraib kind of treatment. They had been uh, attacked by German shepherds. They had been beaten repeatedly. They had been uh, deprived of sleep. They had been deprived of food. They had been subjected to extreme cold uh, and left out in the snow for days. They had uh, been forced not to speak to anyone for months or years. Uh, And they had been subjected to constant, constant interrogations at times. Uh, forced to assume uh, stress positions, the kind of things that um, that uh, Don Rumsfeld thinks <laughs> thinks are no big deal. You know, forced to, to assume a very painful position for a long period of time, and then beaten if you can't uh, maintain that position. Um, and, and you know, these kind of stories are absolutely, absolutely appalling. When we were we were talking interviewing uh, these ex detainees. Our uh, translator left the room and started crying. Um, you know, and he was like, a, he's a big, tough Afghan guy, former boxer. I mean, really awful things. But we wanted to interview these detainees who we knew had been in military custody because we figured they might have come in contact with some of the, the um, extraordinary rendition victims, and they might be able to give us some insight about that. Were were you feeling? I know you're a professional journalist and, and everything, but were you feeling your uh, sense of objectivity and emotional distance being 
challenged at times when you're hearing this kind of stuff sort of firsthand? Yeah, I mean when you when you hear when you hear wrenching stories like that, you know, obviously your your empathy um, goes out to that person, and you know it's hard not to be a human and say, "Wow, that, that's a terrible that's a terrible thing that's that's happened to you." You know, the thing was is is then you know you always figure, well, you know, people may not be telling the truth; they may be full of it. But you know, the thing was, the people we interviewed told similar stories. They told very similar stories, and um, everyone we spoke to who knew about this basically we're telling the same kinds of stories and that that made it very credible you know when you hear when you interview different people uh in separately and they tell you analogous stories that are are, are very similar then, then you start thinking that they're, they're probably telling you the truth um and the guys we spoke to said that they had in one of them said that he had in fact been held with people who were probably the victims of rendition who uh, apparently had been grabbed by the CIA, had apparently been held in secret CIA detention, and eventually shifted over to military custody. And we thought that was that was pretty interesting because that was something that we hadn't heard about before. So, yeah, so you were first talking to guys there in Afghanistan that had been abused, uh, tortured by American military, and then there's these other guys that were part of the rendition program that's under the CIA. So it's not – although the military can be completely outside of the rendition program, they're committing human rights violations and are also overlapping with the rendition program. That's exactly it. Exactly. It is, it's, you know, that's one of the things that, that my co-author Trevor and I have been telling people is that a lot of times it's really hard to see where – one aspect of government starts and the other one um, uh, where it ends and where the next one begins. I mean, the CIA seems to bleed into the U.S. military, seems to bleed into private military contractors. And when you're looking at this stuff, the overlap, there's a lot of overlap between between these different entities. So, you know, that's something that no one's talking about is, is you know, what is the CIA cooperating with the military? Are they um, funneling prisoners to the military? Is the military funneling prisoners to the CIA? And um, and what's going on with that? And the private contractors are in this weird spot or convenient from some people's perspective in that they don't have to follow any sort of military code of justice or anything of that nature. No, the, exactly. The military contractors are basically re- released from most kinds of, of responsibility and oversight. And there are a lot of them in Kabul. We stayed in a hotel that's full of them. Um, but we had kept, while we were there, we kept hearing persistent rumors from Afghan journalists and others that there was some kind of secret detention center that was set up not far from, the, from downtown Kabul. And uh, we, we interviewed uh, the local police commander. We interviewed others, and they said, yes, this is, we believe it's some sort of jail uh, run by Americans. Um, we can't get in there. Uh, even U.S. Milit- some military can't get in there. Um, and so we went to check it out. And when we got to this facility, it was about a block, or about a, about a block, and it was closed off with big blast barriers and sandbags. And there was an Afghan guard who was uh, – the next row of defense was then was then Nepalese Gurkhas with 
uh, U.S. weapons. The next line of defense was then Bosnian uh, dudes who were in, like, half uniforms, like camo pants and T-shirts. And then finally we came to an American guy, and we said, hey, uh, you know, what's going on here? What, what are you guys doing? Who, who are you? And, and none of these people would tell us who they were, who they were, what they were doing, or, or who they were working for. Um, but uh, eventually, we came to learn from from sources in Afghanistan that uh, the installation was probably uh, an installation run by uh, a private military company called DynCor mm-hmm. that, and that they may or may not be involved in detaining uh, terror suspects. Did you ever uh, feel, I you know, threatened in any way in a sense that people gave you the impression that, uh, you know, we really don't want you talking about this, uh, anything like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the military contractors don't like journalists for sure, and, uh, and none of them, you know, none of these people wanted to talk to us. None of them wanted to, us to write stories. None of them wanted to be anywhere near us. And, and, and yeah, they were, not, they were not friendly chaps, and uh, they did not make us uh, feel particularly safe. That, yeah, definitely. Right, but n- no overt, outright threats? No. Okay, well, that's good. Glad to hear that. So um, we're speaking with A.C. Thompson, talking about his book, uh, Torture Taxi, On the Trail of the CIA's Rendition Flights. And this is Out the Rabbit Hole, and I'm Robert Larson's KUCI in Irvine. Uh, A.C., uh, you know, the rendition program w- was known about before you did the book, and, and you kind of exposed more of the mechanics of it and gave us some more specifics about it. But did you have an overall goal you were trying to accomplish with this book? You know, I mean, basically, our plan when we set out was to try to learn as much as we could about the program. Uh, and, and our sort of thought was like, hey, how can we, how can we reverse engineer the rendition program as two, as two guys who don't have um, sources in the Pentagon? We don't have sources at Langley. We're, we're not on you know, normally on the national security beat, I typically write about bad corporations and crooked cops and stuff like that. Um, and we just felt like we're two relatively smart people. We could probably do um, some some investigation here using public records and using uh, these plane spotting techniques to figure things out. And we just really wanted to amass as much information as possible. But did you have a sense of like, oh, this is a a horrible thing and we'd like to see it stop or maybe we don't really know exactly what this is and we'd like to find out more? Oh, yeah. Well, you know. Where was your passion with yeah, that? Well, that, that's the other thing is, you know, the one part of it is the process about about how to further the story and can we get something new that hasn't been out there. And then the other part of it is that, you know, we're American citizens and we have to wake up every single day and and – and uh, with the knowledge that our, our government is torturing people, that they're just tremendously trampling human rights of, of folks around the world, and that, you know, five years ago in this country, we could, we could speak to other countries and we could say credibly, hey, you know, you need to improve your, your record on human rights. Hey, we need to stamp out torture. Hey, you know, 
soldiers and police officers in other countries shouldn't be torturing people. And now, uh, you know, we, the, the human rights abuser is us, and we have to, we have to uh, deal with that. I mean, that, that, that's awful. It's, it's gross. It's painful. It's wrenching. And, and that was the, the moral imperative behind doing it was to sort of um, be able to talk about this and be able to put something out there that maybe got people thinking about this a little bit. You know, I mean, this story is a huge story in Europe. In Europe, there have been criminal investigations. There have been governmental investigations. There's been much gnashing of teeth, all kinds of outrage and outcry about this. And the Euros are only minorly involved in it. You know, they play a tertiary role in all of this. We are the people that are doing this. This is our this is our deal. And Americans don't care. Americans, you know, by and large simply do not care. And that and that's like, you know, the other reason that we wrote the book. Well, I think that kind of, you said Americans don't care and I think uh some of us do, some of us don't, but it seems the majority don't and uh that brings us to something I, I wanted to touch on with you and in, in the the bill that the legislation that the president signed, I believe, earlier this week, the Military Commissions Act, in this uh, piece of legislation passed by Congress, is actually, in a certain sense, trying to make some of this that, by almost unanimous uh, uh, account of legal experts, is illegal, it, it, to make it be legal. It, 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 the renditions, the uh, Removal of habeas corpus, therefore people can be kept indefinitely with no access to judges or lawyers. Can you make some comment on that? Oh, yeah. You know, I I think, for one thing, the way the Military Commissions Act has been covered by the press is a fascinating story. For us up here in San Francisco, where I live, the story, one, wasn't covered by the reporters at the Chronicle, our big daily paper. Uh, You know, basically, they just got a wire service story. Um, to cover the issue. And two, it was buried on page A4 of the paper, so it was, wasn't a front-page story. And uh, to me, this is, this is something that you put your best reporters on, something that you play up uh, the top of the front page. It's incredibly important. And um, I, I've seen a lot of that from other media outlets as well, that they didn't invest a lot of, a lot of resources into reporting on this and didn't take a particularly critical uh, look at it when they did report on it. The, the Military Commissions Act is is really interesting because basically it seems to retroactively okay all of the abuses that have gone on in the rendition program and say, oh, all this awful stuff that's happened to people, well, now that that's okay. And everyone's cleared of any wrongdoing when, as far as that goes. And in fact, yes, now... We can take these people who've been abused and try them before our military commissions, and we can use that evidence that we got out of them through horrid means, and, and we can pretend like that's valid um, evidence to use, that that's valid testimony to use, when, when obviously it's not. It, it's huge, huge, um, basically tectonic shift that we're seeing here as far as, as civil liberties go. And I, I would trace it back to the um, Clinton era again and the the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. And that was a law that was passed after the Oklahoma City bombing. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the first sort of laws that came out 
where they started hacking away at habeas corpus, which is basically the right of a person to file a legal appeal when they're being held in the custody of the government, saying, hey, you've got my body. That's the, that's the Latin. You have the body, and you shouldn't have it. I'm being wrongfully incarcerated here. And, you know, that was one of the first uh, cutbacks at habeas corpus, that law that was also passed in response to terrorism. And this is sort of, once again, taking that idea and bolstering it, making it more severe, more extreme. And it's, it's, incredi- it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Um, and, and really, like, I'll give it up for Keith Olbermann. I find him annoying a lot of times, but mm-hmm. his, his um, basically uh, essay tirade rant uh, about this subject I thought was very moving and very important. Now he did a couple, and, and you, you one one was called the Bill of Right, and well, you know that we don't have a Bill of Rights anymore. He said there was only one of the the one Bill of Right that was still intact after this legislation. And uh, yeah, but you make a great point that people, most Americans, don't seem to care about the rendition program, and didn't even uh, make a lift a finger uh, when this legislation went through. Uh, uh, a couple weeks ago was signed uh, this week by the president. So uh, we're getting towards the end of the show, so I want to ask you a couple of things. Do, do you uh, – what are your uh, thoughts as far as this going to the Supreme Court? Do you think that they will ultimately uh, rule this to be uh, unconstitutional? You know, I don't know about that. I, I, I know that one thing that's going to be interesting is, okay, there's, there's more than 100 um, – habeas corpus petitions currently pending in federal courts um, for people who are in Guantanamo Bay. So if you pass a new law that says all of a sudden, oh, well, these people no longer have recourse to the American courts, um, can you just simply wipe out their claims like that? Or are they still um, valid claims because they made them before the law changed? That, that's a question that, that um, the justices are going to be wrestling with. I don't know what's going to happen at the Supreme Court. I don't have, you know, obviously I don't have a huge amount of faith in um, the Supreme Court smacking down uh, the Military Commissions Act because at a certain level this is what they were asking for. They were saying, look, you, uh, to the executive branch, you don't seem to have uh, statutory authorization to be doing this stuff. But if you created a statute, if you created a law, then you would. And that's what that's what's happened. So I don't have a ton of faith in, in the Supreme Court uh, siding um, with <laughs> human dignity and human rights. Uh, you know, I really think there's going to be something that human beings, uh, the American citizenry, have to push for. I mean, and this has happened before. The In the, the 70s, the Church Commission, uh, chaired by the Senator Frank Church from Idaho, reigned in the CIA because people were unhappy with the dirty tricks that had come out of the Vietnam War and that era. They were unhappy with the things that the CIA was doing in our name and um, basically pressured Congress to put some curbs on there. And I really think that's what's gonna ha- what it's going to take now. Well, yeah, it, it doesn't... Uh, I, yeah. You said you don't have too much faith in the Supreme Court. I don't have too much faith in the current Congress. Obviously, they're the ones right. that passed this. Do you think uh, there is the will among Democrats, if they happen to win control of Congress in two and a half weeks, to, to do anything about this, if enough pressure is put on by us? 
do you want the pessimistic view or the optimistic view? Uh, give me both. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, here's, here's one. There was a piece in The New Yorker not long ago talking about um, the Democratic uh, Leadership Council, the, the DLC, and basically their polling is saying that the civil rights issues, the human rights issues, don't, don't poll well for them. And so they're not pressing candidates to campaign on these issues. Um, that, I think, is, is worrisome. So they're not, you know, the mainstream Dems are not making this a huge issue. You know, it's, it's a handful. It's people like Barbara Lee and Russ Feingold who are making it an issue. So uh, that's very worrisome to me. I'm, I don't see a lot of will out of the Dems to really go crazy on this. I mean, they sign, you know, they basically had to sign on to this to make it happen, the Military Commissions Act. Well, most of them voted against it, I, I believe, in the... Uh... Am I correct on that? Right, right. But you needed a handful of votes to to make it work, and that's that's what they got. Right. And um, but you know maybe maybe just maybe if um the political winds shift a little bit, if they uh that we will get a little bit more spine out of the Dems, that we'll see uh you know some action on this after after the elections. Okay, well, we're just about out of time here. Uh, any uh, quick comment you want to leave us with, A.C. Thompson? You know, I, I really appreciate you having me on, and I, I just want to say, you know, if you get a chance, we'd love for you to pick up our book and check it out or pick up Steve Gray's book, uh, Ghost Plane, as well. And more importantly, we we would love for you to uh, take this stuff seriously and to do whatever makes sense to you to do to research um these human rights issues and get involved. Okay, and that book is Torture Taxi on the Trail of the CIA's Rendition Flights. A.C. Thompson and uh, Trevor Paglin. In, uh, is, uh, do you have a website or anything like that you want to give out? You know, um, you can check out our publisher's website, which is mhpbooks.com, or you can check out uh, my colleague uh, Trevor's website, which is paglin.com, P-A-G-L-E-N.com. Okay, and yeah, that's uh, the publisher. It's Melville House Publishing, and uh, yeah, they put out a lot of great books. So thanks again for being with us today, uh, A.C. Thompson. Thank you. Okay, bye now. All right, A.C. Thompson, and that book is Torture Taxi, On the Trail of the CIA's Rendition Flights.